listening to First Church Charlotte. About a couple things. Um, tremendous fear in our society right now over this uh, coronavirus that is having a bigger impact than I think we ever expected. Um, it's, it's, it's the fear of the unknown. Um, I think most people know that as far as actual numbers that we currently know, it's, it's, if you have to choose between that and the flu, you probably should choose, the, choose that rather than the flu. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, is there's so much unknown that uh, people just don't know. We, we have a lot of experience with the flu. You know, two weeks of misery, you're back at it. And this other thing, we don't know what's at. So there's a lot of fear. I've been praying the Lord would use this fear to to, to soften, people, soften people's heart toward God and bring a revival out of that. And I do know whenever there is anxiety in, the, in a culture, in a society, there's an opportunity for the Lord to, to, to minister to people in a way that... Well, let me say it this way. How many of you know you learn more through your tears than your smiles? You learn a lot more through your tears. And fear sometimes is a... In the same manner that the law teaches, uh, fear can instruct us. And if we respond to it the right way, uh, our hearts are turned toward the kingdom of God. Uh, so I'm praying for the Lord to use it that way. In the meantime, we, we don't want to be bad stewards of just basic things. And I, I want to say this, if, if, if anyone, any one of you don't want to shake someone's hand, no one will be... F- or shake hands. No one here will be offended. You can just give them the Ebola bump with your elbow, and um, and that be enough. Um, it's totally okay. I would rather us just give each other the benefit of the doubt than and create an environment where we feel like, oh, we have to stay home. Um, if it came to that, the church would survive that. If the, if the church made it through the Black Plague, the Black Death, um, I promise you, we're going to make it through COVID nineteen. <laughs> so in the meantime. In the meantime, I, I just want you to know, uh, for our elders, uh, we're, we're honored. To have, we have the best elders uh, here at First Church. And if you need if your risk profile with anything like this, if this were to get into North Carolina in, in a substantial way, um, you would need to take special care. And we would, I think our church is pretty much set up where we could still serve you. You could attend our services. Um, you could still be involved in the life of the church while taking care. Um, we want you to do that. So we're we're trusting God. We're believing God. At the same time, we're good stewards. Can I have a big amen? And uh, the Lord's going to bring us through this as long as, you know, the, as long as the stock market doesn't jump off the top of a bridge somewhere, you know, <laughs> you and your 401k will be all right. So. <laughs> and I don't mean to minimize it. That's not what I'm trying to do. I just, I want you to be uh, aware that we are not with our head in the sand over, over these things. Um, we're on lesson four of First Steps. Excuse me, not first steps. We're going to be in lesson two of first steps later on today. We're on lesson four of a series I've been doing entitled Love and Holiness. And it is really using the, the, the teaching of the scripture and the self the revelation of God, how he reveals himself to teach us about his kingdom. And I'm going to, I'm planning on uh, ending it next week. I do want to say that there, uh, there's so much material uh, and there is so much um, image and theme 
type and shadow in the scripture repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again that really the subject deserves a longer treatment than would be uh, suitable in like a Sunday series and sometime we may do that but I've just got to I've got to kind of find a way to land this thing because I don't want to go down that rabbit's hole. Uh, And then next year this time, we're still talking about love and everybody's... Although my wife did take me on a date, so some good things are happening with all this love preaching. And so... Our theme verse has been 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 23. We've been reading it in the message translation. May God himself... The God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. So let's get into this, and I will start by reviewing for you uh, a few things. The, The philosophers gave us five words for love. The Bible only acknowledged four of them and set that fifth one in a different category. So you'll understand the language I'm using. Um, I want to go over over these with you. Uh, The famous Christian philosopher and apologist C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book entitled The Four Loves that is, I highly recommend it um, if you are the type who would enjoy uh, reading a book like that. It's a wonderful book. He goes over the four loves that the Bible receives and acknowledges as authentic love. And we have, over the last three weeks, tried to take each one of them and learn something about the nature of God, the nature of our human needs, and the nature of the kingdom that God has established. Now, I want to remind you that each of these loves that are shown to us will be individually used in the scripture to show us something about God and his relationship to us. So uh, the first one we talked about is the love of, uh, of a family, the love of the affection, or the affection, I should say, of a, of a family, and that is in the Greek storage, and it really is speaking to family, the love you have for uh, family members, and also uh, the, lo- the, the, the true friendships that can exist, that uh, the, the love, the commitment that can exist in an authentic, um, healthy friendship, uh, the scripture and both and the Greek philosophers called this phileo, um, and then there is the selfless love of a of unequals, and this we see with a parent where you we, literally the child is helpless, utterly dependent. The child does not even really have a complicated enough intellect or a richly developed enough emotional life to know what love is. What the, the baby knows is need, not love. And yet the parent absolutely, and to the exclusion of everything else, risking life, limb, and everything else, will care and protect for for that child. And if you haven't been a parent, um, you, ha- you may not, you may kind of th- have a sense of what that may- would be like. I-, I thought I had a sense of what it would be like, and I did, I had a sense. But nothing, compa- nothing prepared me um, uh, for the actual experience of having children. And when you hold that little, little baby who is nothing but the source of stinky smells and sleeplessness, and it feels as though the whole universe has been made whole, 
in your arms. And uh, now my, my father had told me that I would learn a whole lot about God by having children. And then I had children. And what do you knew? He was right. It's an astonishing thing when a parent is right. I've learned from my children that parents are usually wrong. And um, it's an astonishing thing when we're actually right. And so... Um, This agape love, this is how God shows us the unequal nature of our need and his love. It is a selfless love. And God teaches us scripturally with this image of a a parental um, unequal um, love. And we call that agape love. And then finally, the the love that is shown to us in the scripture is, uh, that is the fourth teaching is eros. This is romantic love. And uh, you, if you're old, Older than the age of uh, uh, nine, if you're a boy, and six if you're a girl, <laughs> you know about romantic love at least as an idea. The fifth love that the philosophers talked about that the Bible reject rejects it as love, and the Bible does not acknowledge it as love, is epithumia, and this is to have passionate desire, passionate lust. It's almost a type of madness where you are um, not just inclined, but highly probable to make a series of bad decisions. This is epithumia. The Bible, the Bible separates lust from love because the Bible will not acknowledge love to be such unless it comes wrapped in a commitment of some type. Let me say that again to this side of the church. The Bible will not acknowledge a love as a love unless it comes wrapped in a corresponding and appropriate commitment. And I want to show you that here today. Why does the Bible reject lust and passion when that's what our culture celebrates? Why does the Bible reject want and wish, longing and lust when that's what our our, our, really, uh, our culture elevates, exalts, and worships at the altar of. The reason why is because this ultimately is a false love. It is want, pretending to be commitment, so you'll give me what I want. It is possession, pretending to be affection, uh, so I can have what I want. And it is lust, pretending to be covenant. And yet, it is deeply a part of the human experience. I think it is one of the most uh, dysfunctional things that have happened in the last century in our society has been uh, the, the decline of a, a formal dating to be replaced by hookup culture. Now, I don't want to talk a lot about this because this is a mixed, a mixed group and it would be easy to make some of you parents mildly inappropriate because you think your children don't know much about these things. Um, I don't want to disabuse you of your delusions. I want you to stay right there where you think you know what your kids know. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, it's, it's my personality to kind of be a little bit appropriate um, or uh, head, hesitant to address some of these issues. But I, I want to say, I, I do want to take a moment and say and speak against this generation where um, there is nothing but the flesh involved. There's nothing but the physical involved in this, uh, these joinings of, of people. Um, I think it is a way of betraying your soul. And I think our society, by celebrating the 
lust, they have done it at the expense of their soul. And whatever they gain in pleasure. Now, it's easy, it's easy as a preacher just to say it's sin, don't do it. And, and that, that is true. And I want to do that. But I, at the same time, I want to speak to a generation and say, I, you, you should consider that what you trade for the casual pursuit of physical pleasure may be being paid for later in the emptiness of your very soul experience and what does it mean to matter to somebody. I promise you it is at its best, deeply, deeply less satisfying and deeply far from what God intended it to be. I'll perhaps say a few things more about that in a moment. Love, however, in spite of how it is abused in society in the manner of really celebrating one love, which is the love of want, or the false love, I should say, of want, um, it is in spite of our, our, our abuse of it, in spite of our ruination in many ways of it. Um, It really is in its wholeness, in all of its expressions, in uh, friendship, in family, um, in in agape selfless, uh, and finally in romantic. Love is how we are made whole. Love doesn't usually make sense, but it has the oddity of making everything else make sense. It doesn't always seem to add up on your calculator, but it makes the rest of your life make sense in a hard-to-describe way. And it is so fundamentally true that God chooses it as, as, as self-definition. This is how he chooses to describe himself. So there are three teaching examples in Scripture where God defines himself as a, as a thing that we know of or at least we we categorize, and that is the great, the three great self-definitions of God, that he is spirit, that he is light, and that he is love. And I, of course, I, I, went, to, I went to college and, and on uh, in religious college, went to a Bible school and studied all these things, and we could get into the nitty-gritty of, of language, what it means, and we could say that Spirit is God in his essence, and we could say that uh, love is God in his, ex- uh, in his expression, and light is love in God's manifestation. Uh, but the truth is, we would have made metaphorical or made comparative. That's an easier word to understand. We would have made comparative in the manner of an adjective what God chose to claim in the manner of being, of a noun. Now, I know I'm nerding out a little bit, but I, I, want you to, I want you to understand, of these three categories, spirit, light, and love, only one of them hits you as an emotional experience that you know something about. You've never been light. You have no idea what it feels like to have a photonic kind of day. I'm sorry, total nerd moment, forgive me. You have no idea. Light, okay, it's warm, it's nice, it's good when I can see. If you come into the service and the uh, uh, ushers have the lights too low, uh, they have them at the worship setting and not the the mingle uh, setting, you come in, you're like, whoa, lead me, Lord, I'll follow. (laughs) 
Um, you, you see what I'm saying? That, but that's not an emotional experience. So it is with spirit. You get the idea that you have eternity within you and you feel a sense of eternity. But when I say God is spirit and you are spirit, you're like, okay, um, where are we going to eat? It doesn't hit you. It doesn't impact you. But when I tell you that God is love, that comes with truckloads full of memory, truckloads full of experience. That hits you like a hammer. To say God is love, God self-defines as, as love. And this is what I have tried to convey to you in these, in these last, last three weeks. And, and, and that is this. Love, it makes us whole because we are individuals without completeness in ourselves. We are, as it were, pieces of a larger whole. We are persons within a larger entity. Our being is in context with others. You cannot think of who you are and how you came to be who you are and understand your place in the world without the formative experiences of the people who have defined you. We are all of us connectors and if we do not connect we will wonder why our life feels like it is missing something profound and deep and so love makes us whole it connects us it completes us all of the loves teach us something about human need and God's nature all of them and that's not just my opinion this is the testimony of scripture chapter after chapter verse after verse book after book. God will show you himself as parent. He will show you himself as friend. He will show you himself as truly uh, 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 the agape father who when you were dead in trespasses and sins gave himself for you and he will show you romantic love as an ideal of the kind of passion that he wants to have with you not simply God as provider, but God as lover. I can't get enough of you. This is difficult for us to understand, but the Bible is unapologetic about it. The Bible repeats it. The Bible celebrates it. The Bible takes a whole book and tells the story of God's love for you and your need for him in the story of romance and poetry. So I want to... I want to continue today and I want to show you something that I think is, is necessary for us to take the next step of understanding. We talked last week about how God uses uh, the friendship and he, he uses that as a teaching example of his, um, his sustenance in our life and his presence in our life. This week we're going to talk about family in the similar manner. But before I do that, I need you to understand biblical covenants. I need you to understand covenants not as contract, although that is a similar understanding to think of an ancient word to a modern word. I need you to think of them more spiritually than simply contracts. And so I want to show you three things. These are in your notes if you download the resource notes for this off of the church website. The first thing I need you to understand about covenants is this. Covenants are the backbone of the biblical story. And if you fail to understand covenants, Covenants, you'll under, you will not understand why anybody's doing anything. 
You ever, re- you ever read a badly written book and people do things but you can never figure out why? That's the sign of a poorly written book. The author has the goal of taking you inside the motivations of the characters so when they act, you can follow the story of who they are and what they're trying to work out in their imaginary life. But when an author fails to take you into the inner life of a character, their actions not only are confusing but oftentimes absurd. Why would you actually do that? If you do not understand covenants, the actions of people in the Bible and the action of the giver of life, God himself, will fail to make any sense to you. You have to see the backbone of the story between divinity and humanity is built upon covenants. It starts at the very beginning. God covenant with Abraham. It serves as a foundation. God's covenant with Noah. It is not a covenant of redemption. It is a covenant of of promise, of reassurance that he will never judge the world again in that manner. His covenant with, with Abraham is a covenant of faith and it is a covenant to express a way of approaching God in covenant family relationship. More on that in just a moment. His covenant with David becomes a covenant of praise, worship, fellowship. All of these covenants explain everything else that happened in the Bible. And if you miss the covenants, you won't understand the backbone of the Bible. I know I'm laying a foundation here, but it's necessary uh, for us to, to, to take a journey here together. We need to understand covenants. We in our society are very comfortable with this style of living. I'm okay okay, you're okay, let's just get along. That is not covenant language. We have this, this, this kind of modern reality in our society where you do what you like and I'll do what I like and, and we'll just be neighbors. How about that? That is not covenant language. I, I want you to start understanding this. The reason why men and women of faith act is because of covenant that they have with God. And the reason why God himself acts rather than simply disappearing into whatever type of infinite eternity in which he has habits above and beyond time, the reason why he shows up again and again and again is covenant. The reason why he does not give up on Adam and Eve in the garden is covenant. The reason why he again sends ministers and and kings and priests and prophets in spite of persecution, in spite of rejection uh, is covenant. The reason why he slips into his own world as a lamb that is going to bear in his body the uh, the sensual sin of a creation that has turned against him and be in all points tempted proving to justice that righteousness can be accomplished and then having accomplished what you and I will never accomplish which is righteousness he then will do a value swap with you and he will say I have shown justice that righteousness can be attained and now having attained that I'm going to give it to you and you're going to give me every lie you have ever told and you're going to give me every hatred you've ever felt and you're going to give me every mistake and every sin and every pain and every tragedy you're going to give me that and I am going to give you righteousness and what's that's going to do that's going to allow me who is eternal to die and it's going to allow you who are mortal to live and it's going to allow me who cannot stand in your weakness to go to hell and take your judgment and then to beat 
hell at its own game, take the authority of its imprisonment away from it, and then take you with me to heaven. Why would God do that? Covenant. Covenant. He makes a promise, and then he stands upon that promise. He's not a man that he should lie. What does that mean? He has no need to lie. It's, he's infinite. It's just as easy for him to do what he said he would do as to not do what he said. We're not used to that. We're used to people over-promising and what? Under-delivering. I'll pay you back this Sunday. Okay, whatever. I'll give you some money next week. Okay, whatever. The check is in the mail. We're here from the government and we're going to help you. Uh, We don't have any COVID-19 tests, but you might be sick. Over-promise, under-deliver. But God, being infinite, is not bound by a lack of testing equipment and not bound by a lack of hand sanitizer. How many of you have tried to buy hand sanitizer recently? Well, let me tell you how to make it if you don't know how to do it. What you do is you get... Three cups of uh, 91% alcohol and one cup of aloe vera gel. And then you just mix it up. Voila. If you want it to smell good, you women put some essential oils in it, whichever one you like. You've got hand sanitizer. It ain't complicated. Go forth, thou art healed. God has no reason to make a promise he can't keep because God can do whatever he decides to do. So if he says he's taking you all the way to heaven, honey, you're going to heaven. If he says he's able to keep that which has been committed to him unto that day, he's going to keep that which has been committed unto him unto that day. So covenant is the backbone of the Bible story. Secondly, covenant is a chosen relationship in which individuals make binding promises and commitments one to another. You do not accidentally enter into covenant. It is chosen. You stand there and you consider not just your desire for a liaison with a person. You identify, this is covenant, at the beginning what the punishment's going to be if you don't. Imagine marriage vows that go like this. I promise to love you I promise to be there for you I'll always but if you leave me I will hunt you down and I will stake you to an anthill I get an amen from this side of the church over here it's like my god finally a preacher I can agree with you ladies you are blessed today's international women's week we had all women singers up here and the preacher's talking about staking your man to an anthill you know what's going down from here So a covenant is not just sweet. It's not just everything's going to be rosy. A covenant, you identify the punishment and then you make the commitment. That's unique in the ancient world and it's also unique uh, or shown, I should say, in the covenants of the the people of God. But here's the unique thing about the covenants of the people of God. We cannot keep promises we make to God. And so when um, Abraham enters into covenant with the Lord, the Lord symbolically, they take the sacrificial animal, it is uh, butchered, it's separated, and then the two covenant parties, this is not just in Jewish culture, this is all ancient cultures, Uh, You can read this in Roman history. You can read this in Greek history. And the two parties will then make a vow to each other and they will walk between the butchered animal and they will say to whatever gods they believe in, if I break this covenant, may my God or gods do to me as we have done to the sacrificial animals. And that's when they walk between and they make a commitment to each other while looking the consequences right in the eye. It's not a casual thing. Oh yeah, let's hang out sometime. Let's see who's on Tinder and hook up. No, it's not casual. 
schedule. It is a commitment. But here's what's interesting about God. We make as limited beings promises we can't keep. And so when God makes this covenant with Abraham, the Bible says the spirit of the Lord, the manifestation of the spirit of the Lord, it moves through the butchered animal. And when it's Abraham's turn... He can't move, and the Spirit of the Lord moves through again as if to say, I'll keep the commitment for me, and I'll keep the commitment for you. Or let me say it this way. I'll keep the commitment, and if I don't, I'll pay for it. You keep the commitment, and if you don't, I'll still pay for it. This is the covenant reason behind Calvary because God always knew in the manner of a parent with a child who was helpless and making promises they can't keep that we needed mercy. We needed it so bad and yet we were so vain and we were so arrogant that we entered into a, a, a higher, a dominance hierarchy with God. That's how Eve fell in the garden. The, 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 the serpent said, you'll be like God. She says, ooh, I can compete. No, you can't compete. You're like a child. You make promises with your mouth that your wallet can't keep. You don't even have a wallet yet. Your wallet is a call mom. You see what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with that. I still call my mom. She's the one with all the money. I want you to, I want you to see, I want you to see that God knew you were a problem before he ever died for you, and he died for you anyway. Oh, I'm preaching some grace in this house here today. God knew you were a disappointment before you ever disappointed, and he died for you anyway. He knew you were so lowly, he said, let me do it for you. And that act of love is so profound, it serves as an invitation to us to turn from the way of rebellion, turn from the way of the flesh, turn from the casual transgression of the moral law of God and say, oh, that's the old, I don't want to do that. I want to respond to this so great love by dedicating my life to God and his kingdom. Anybody feel that way here today? So this covenant, thirdly, the third thing you've got to understand about covenants is, so the first thing is that they're the backbone of the Bible, and you won't understand motivation, character, the motivation of the people in the Bible without understanding covenants. Secondly, covenants are chosen, and they are entered into with binding commitments. And number three, in a spiritual sense... In a spiritual sense, covenants are not an agreement, not simply of an exchange of vows. They are an exchange of persons. Now, this is a spiritual thing. Um, a covenant is a, a contract is an exchange of, of, of agreements. I will give you uh, $49 and you will give me an all expense paid vacation to Hawaii. That's a covenant. So if you'll see me after church, we will totally make that covenant happen, okay? Um, that's a covenant. But in a spiritual sense, it's not an exchange just of commitments, it's an exchange of persons. This is the point of Adam and Eve, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Adam here in just a moment, but Adam and Eve, and they, the Bible says they become one flesh. Now, what's interesting about this is um, this is not simply a, a biological image that's given. Um, it's not simply, and, and I'll show you this in just a moment, it's not simply kind of like a biological coupling, and that's the end of the story, and that's what they're saying. No, every animal in God's creation has biological coupling, but God never says that they too are one. It's not the biology that has spiritual impact. 
I know I'm on some of your parents' edge and you're nervous, okay? I'm just, I'm just, just look, your kids know more than you think they do, okay? I, I just want to say, that's not the point. And if that's how you read it, and the only way you read it, you miss the spiritual nature of us humans who we are not simply spoken. We are formed and into us is breathed the breath of life and we become in the image of God through the giving. We are joined not simply in a biological necessity. We are now turning away from all others we cleave one to another these two who were individuals are now made whole by being brought together and their interests are joined and their values are joined and their futures are joined and if we miss this we miss the deep teaching the profound undertones of the 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 story the bible tells of love over and over and over again all right so i've given you those three things now let me get to my message. Don't worry, I won't go much longer unless I'm in the mood or you don't say amen loudly. Then it could be a while. So, <laughs> the suckers over here, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a coronavirus kiss after church. <clears throat> of the four loves, friendship is indeed the lowest commitment. And yet the Bible shows us again and again the friendship commitment of God at a higher level even than a family commitment. And the Bible says that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. However, there can be covenant friendships. The Bible shows us covenant friendships in several places. The most famous, of course, is the story of King David and the son of his enemy, King Saul, and how they made a covenant one to another. There is a value in deep friendships. Uh, We can be Uh, We can be prepared to face the world with having connections to people in our life that we are, we are, we are connected to. There is value in deep friendships and truthfully a friend you cannot count upon is not really a friend but an acquaintance, acquaintance because a friend is someone who at some level in some way you know that you can count upon them. But family is what we're talking about today and family is a higher covenant than friendship. God will use family more than any other image in the Bible to express his devotion and his care for his covenant people, his chosen people. He will use family more than any other covenant. Remember, he will use friendship, and he does. We talked about that last week. And also, he will use romantic commitment and feelings of, of, of love, and, and he will use that uh, in the scripture. We'll talk about that next week. But this week, we're talking about how he uses family to teach us something about his nature, his commitment to you. The family commitment in the Bible is repeated over and over, from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to the patriarchs to David to Israel. Through the New Testament church, he talks of his people as his family. A family is the only place you experience all four loves within one larger entity. You will experience all four loves within a larger entity. Um, And that is through a family. You will see them. They will be necessitated. In fact, without all four loves, families cannot exist. 
And so you will see over and over in the Bible, the Lord identify his people as his family. I put a bunch of references in your resource notes there. And there is, as a result, lessons that can only be taught to you and to the church through understanding the family of God. Even in the New Testament, this church, not just made of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just Jewish covenant inheritors, but these people who have repented of their sins and been given his name and baptized and made to host his presence as a daily way of life filled with his spirit it is now you who were once afar off you who have been called near you are now called the family and even more the household of God this will be repeated multiple places and the church in all of its forms and all of its ministries and all of its giftings will be example to you scripturally as the family of God. What can we learn by looking at families and by seeing how God manifests his heart toward us and celebrates his covenant toward us? What can we learn by looking at these families in the scripture? And the first thing I want to, I want to say to you is uh, really kind of a, a sad observation, but it is nonetheless true. And that is, I, I, I truly believe that a family without trust, a family without safety, and a family without loyalty is the greatest source of pain in all the world. I think there are more damaged people because of dysfunctional families than any other failure of society in the world. You can go to the worst prisons. In fact, there are documentaries you can watch where the worst criminals are interviewed. And the thing you will find consistent is they grew up in a place that felt like the jungle, not a family. They grew up in a place where only the strong survived and the weak became prey and it was so formative to them that their plan for survival was to hurt the people that was around them because their introduction to life was not the four loves that make a family possible, but instead predation and contest and hatred and fear. And now they walk through life literally as sources of pain just like a beast of the field red and tooth and claw they walk through the world so dangerous that society agrees we need to lock them up because they're so damaged in their core in their fundamental being that they are a risk to this world the most broken people I have ever met in my life came from terribly broken families the most dysfunctional people I have ever met in my life came from dysfunctional families and let me say it differently because I want you to feel this this is something I value and something that is um, important to me so I'm going to say it uh, so you can understand it. The most damaged Christians I have ever met in my life come from churches that were not safe places. It's heavy, I know. I'm sorry for bringing you down like that. The most damaged and dangerous Christians I have ever met came from churches that were not safe places. And your brother and your sister was just as easily wounded as cared for and just as commonly hated as embraced. There may have been a veneer. There may have been an outward example. But the truth is, 
Broken people break people. Hurt people hurt people. Wounded people wound people. I'm so thankful that we as a church feel like a safe place. I want to remind all of you this. As a church, we cannot have the feel of a family that only accepts the strong. Because families have addicts in them. But you can't kick them out of the family. Families have less gifted and more gifted. I want you to see in the story of all the families that God endorses in the Bible, they might be backslidden. They might be sinful, but they're never not his children. They may be judged. They may be in some way uh, exiled. They may be in some way punished, but they're never not his children. Even when he comes to them and they greet him with murder, He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is the kind of love that happens in a healthy family. Not all of us can run at the same speed. Let me talk spiritually here for a moment and say this. This church has what is the equivalent of spiritual marathoners in it. People who are highly committed. They are highly organized. Their life is a testimony and their stewardship is strong. They do not need you to pay their life bill because they got themselves organized. They are living examples of strength and probity. They're in this church and we love them and we need them. All church exists because of the strong core that make it possible. But a family that only accepts people at a certain level of attainment isn't a family, it's a club. Families also have people in them who walk with a limp. And there's other people in this church who they're just trying to get off the couch. I mean, they want to run, but they're just stuck on the couch like, my God, I guess I'll go to church. We're glad you're here. Because a family doesn't do a test. And if the little kids can't keep up, they're left in the wilderness. No, a family figures out who's strong and then puts the kid up and says, here, have a kid. And you put that little sucker on your shoulder and you take off running through the desert. The family does not leave anybody behind. We are the family of God. And if we're a healthy family, you know what that means we have? That means we express agape love. It's unequal love. They have nothing they can give us, but we still are willing to invest in them. They have nothing to give us, but we're willing to invest in them. And you know what? That is the family of God. And we also have friendships. We have hearts that agree. We have common interests. And we also have brotherly affection and sisterly support. And we have generations uh, where one generation aids and helps and guides and blesses another generation. And we also have uh, the great romance of eternity where our heart looks heavenward and we see in God everything that is beautiful. And we see in God everything that is lovely. And he looks in us and sees his very image and the story the great love story of the of the universe the great love story of eternity is fulfilled in the family of God Amen. the church should feel like a safe place 
Yeah, there's order, but it's a family kind of order. And yeah, there's discipline, but it's a family kind of discipline. And yeah, we have crazy people, but it's a family and everybody knows families have crazy people. Families have crazy people. Families have criminals. Families have addicts. Family have idiots. Sorry, take that back. My God, I'm preaching some straight truth here today. I want you to see the family is God's masterpiece of creation. And this church succeeds or fails as a family that cares for its weak, that binds up people who are of our household. We bless one another. I either win with you or I don't win at all. And when you lose, I lose. And when you weep, I weep. Why? Because God has brought us into a family. I want to end. I've got a long way to go, but I I want to think about ending maybe sometime in five minutes. But for five minutes, let me just give you uh, a realization of something that happens to Adam. Remember, real quick, Adam, uh, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning, um, it's like an acorn to the tree of life. Imagine someone saying, hey, I want to show you the tree of life. You're like, okay, I'm ready, and they give you an acorn. They have shown you the tree of life. It just wasn't what you... That's what these beginning stories are in... In the, in, the, in the book of Genesis, there, there are acorns that will grow into something. And, and Adam has everything in the garden. What does he have in the garden? What has God given him in perfection? He's given him place. He's given him provision. He's given him protection. And he's also given him an arena of mastery. These are things all of us need. We all need to find a place. We need to have a place. We can't live as trespassers. We have to have a place where our guards can come down. We can't live our life with all always holding our weapons tight and our shields close. We have to have place. We have to have protection. These are things that God gives Adam at the very beginning. We have to have protection. We have to have provision. And we have to have an arena of mastery in our life. Even if you were independently wealthy, you would still have to produce, you would still need to produce mastery at some way. You would, you might start a nonprofit. You might chase a hobby. You might do something uh, that wasn't work for the man, but you would still have a need because you need that. And so as individuals, as we are becoming, we have to find these things. And to all of our young people, all to our young adults, all to our college age, all of our singles, I I have asked you almost every Sunday that you work on these things now. Don't wait to find anybody to give you those things. You have to find your place now. Uh, You have to find how you can, are going to have provision. You're going to have to be a mature, strong person who doesn't need someone else to take up for you. You're strong, you have place, you're, and you also need to pursue mastery. However, uh, these things, if you lack these things, you need to be fixed. There's something fundamentally wrong. You have to fix these things. But even after Adam had all of these things, there was something lacking. He even had the presence of God. And God said, there's something lacking. And God gave him Eve. And uh, Eve was giving not to fix him, not to give him place, not to give him provision, not to give him perfect, perfect uh, well, in my case, Eve was given to give me provision. But anyway, enough about that. Um, 
place, provision, protection. Um, and uh, he's given all of these things. And mastery, he's given all of these things. Um, uh, she's not given to fix him. She's, she's given to complete him. She's given to make, make him whole, not to fix him. Um, so what happens when they, having been joined together, and God says it's very good, what happens when sin comes? They lose the place that God has provided for them. What do they lose when the garden, they are expelled from the garden, there's an angel there. Remember, this is all the acorn to the tree of life. What do they lose? They lose place. They lose protection. They lose provision. They still have this need for place, this need for protection, this need for provision, and they still have this uh, need for mastery, and they still have this desperate, desperate need for the presence of God, and they still have this desperate need for connection one to another. They haven't lost any of their needs. Do you see? They haven't lost any of their needs. They've just lost the place where God gave them all to them. What will God give them to replace the Garden of Eden? Now, some of you guys, I'm going to say this. At first, you're not going to, you're going to have to think about it, but that's okay. You got the rest of the day, all right? What does God give them to replace the Garden of Eden? He gives them family. What does a family give you? Family gives you place. What does a family give you? Family gives you provision. If my kids had to buy one single thing of their own, they would be running around here naked and skinny and starving. And your kids are just as bad. You need provision. My kids can't protect themselves. They are a victim waiting to happen. And your kids are just as bad. But they don't need. Why? They got me. And I will slap a fool. You know what I'm saying? They don't need place. Why? They're staying at my place. If you have sense, I might let them come visit. But they're staying at my place. They don't need a place. They got a place. All you parents say amen. Amen. They don't need provision. I am going to get them that happy meal. I don't need you to get them that. Now, I work as a pastor, but if I had to dig ditches, I'd be digging ditches. You know why? We're a family. We're a family. I'd be out there digging ditches. I've done it before. I'm a good ditch ditch digger. We've got to be careful saying that. I almost got myself. (laughs) Jesus, take the wheel. Do you see why they don't have to worry about it? Because I'm stinking worried about it. They don't have to worry about it. I'm worried about it. I had a conversation about this here with them recently. And I told them it's like a gift. And I'm like, when I was little, my dad was worried about it. I didn't have to worry about it. Because if he had to go do he was he was worried about it. And this is the gift I'm giving you right now. You don't have to worry about it. Me and your mama, more your mama than me, is worried about it. We're all spending mama's money. Don't laugh at me, Don. You're just as bad. <laughs> okay. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a gift. And I told him, I said, this is what's cool. And they're just sitting there. And I said, in a few years, you're going to give it to your kids. They're going to be like, Wah! And you're going to be like, oh, baby, it's okay. I got a bottle right here. Oh, baby, I got some nasty kids food for you right here. Oh, have a happy meal. And it's going to be the best thing you've ever did. You see, this is family. And so, I, I want you to see, when they lose Eden, God gives them family to replace what Eden has lost. And a family gives them place, provision, and protection. So, I want to say this. 
Um, for a family to be healthy, we have to be willing to work at it. Families fail when we shirk our duties. Families fail when the people who ought to work won't work. I'm not just talking about providing. I'm talking about the whole stack. I want to give you five things that you have to be willing to do to be a part of a healthy, spiritual, or physical family. Five things very quickly. Teach. You have to be willing to teach. Isaiah 54, 13. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Also, Psalms 132 and 12. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony, that I shall teach them their children also. Their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. All that King Jamesian language there is messing me up there. We have to be willing to teach. That's hard work. We have to be willing to do it. What's the second thing we have to be willing to do? We have to be willing to listen. A family will never be healthy if you dominate people. You, I don't care if you're older than them. You cannot dominate them or it doesn't feel like a safe place. One of the greatest gifts that my mom and dad gave to us kids, I think they regret it now, but from a young age, they would listen to what we thought about everything. And even, even when we had other people, they would let me disagree with them. And then later on, they'd be like, now, okay, just calm down. Just take a breath. Uh, we have the Sunday before Easter, um, we have Jeff Arnold's going to be here preaching for us that Sunday before Easter. So put your seatbelts on. Fair warning. It's going to be amazing. So anyway, um, he came to preach for us. And I was a little kid. And he was doing magic tricks. And I was a little sucker. I I was arguing with him about how he had done that magic trick. And finally, he got on his nerve. And he looked at my mom and dad like, aren't you going to beat him yet? (laughs) And my mom's like, hmm, I'll beat you, brother. You best watch yourself. (laughs) I don't, we cannot dominate. And one of the worst ways we dominate people is by taking their right to have a voice. We have to learn to listen. As a church, we have to teach. As a church, we have to listen. Number three, hard work. You have to forgive. Oh, let me go back to listen. James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Number three, forgive. Peter asked the Lord, you know, I'm such a good guy. I think I'll forgive my brother seven times. Do you think that's enough? And Jesus says, no, how about 70 times seven? We have to learn to forgive. Is it hard work? Yes. But the family fails when the people who are strong enough to do the work won't do the work. The weak of the family depend upon the strong of the family to do the work of the family. Number four, we have to apologize. It feels like hard, hard work. So... The writer says, Matthew, you're making an offering at the altar and you remember there your brother has something against you. Matthew's quoting Jesus. Leave your gift there at the altar and go first be reconciled unto your brother, then come and offer your gift. Apology is hard work. But when the strong in the family won't do the work of the family and the work of the family is left to the weak, that's called dysfunction. And there is not much future for that family. Number five, we have to do the work of serving one another. In so much, Jesus said, as ye have taught it unto one of the least of these thy brethren, or you have done it unto one of le- these, the least of thy brethren, you have done it unto me. We must, as a family, your family, the church family, we must teach, we must listen, we must forgive, we must apologize, and we must serve. And if we will do that, we have a chance to build a truly, wait for it, garden of wholeness where I have a place. 
I have provision. I have protection. And I am able to pursue who I am and what I can do in this place. And I am joined together with my creator in a timeless love story that is the reason why there is anything at all rather than just a void. So musicians come. Thank you. Musicians come. I want to... I want to remind you that families specialize in meeting needs. Healthy families specialize in meeting needs. And healthy families specialize in reconciling different opinions. Families learn how to get along when they don't want to get along. Healthy families learn how to shut up. And if your family doesn't know how and when to shut up, then it's not healthy. Families learn how to organize themselves and know that some things matter more than other things. Families learn how to embrace people who are getting on their nerves and support people they don't even like. How many of you have ever helped someone in your family and you didn't even like them, but you sent them money? Raise your hand. Oh, my brother, don't even get me started. And you feel the same way. That's family. And when God chooses a covenant relationship to teach us about what the kingdom of God feels like, he always identifies the larger kingdom as a family. And so I want to end with this. I, I thought about using a prop this Sunday, but it was, I did, couldn't come up with any good ideas, and so I didn't use a prop. But um, I, I, want to, I want to try to express something and, that you can take with you and, and as a reminder. And I... After I've expressed it, I want to show you scripture to back this up because it's always good when a preacher uses scripture to back up something they say. I've done it both ways and I'm telling you, scripture's better. (laughs) So there's this idea to think as an individual, I came up in a somewhat dysfunctional family. And the reason why I say somewhat is because um, The truth is, your family may have been dysfunctional and still loved you very much. Loved you very much, but messed you up. (laughs) And you know why? Because they messed up. They were messed up by somebody behind them. This is a strange, a strange message to preach with your mom and dad on the front row. I just want to say that for the record. Don't, don't ever do that. Just kidding. I had perfect parents. So, there's this idea to think that I was broken perhaps by my family, uh, by abuse, by circumstances, by the neighbor, by a, you know, crazy uncle. I was broken. And then I came to God and and God's going to heal me and make me whole. And having made me whole, we're going to look around for a family in which God can put me as a healed person. I want to tell you that's not how it happens. It's not how it happens. God does not take you out of a dysfunctional family make you whole and then go survey other families to find somebody good enough worthy of you that's not how it works imagine like staples in a stapler if the stapler is broken it doesn't matter if the staples are useful the stapler is broken they become useless because the stapler is broken do you see now if you take those staples out of a broken stapler 
they're, they're still without place, without purpose. They're no longer in a broken stapler, but they do not find their place and purpose until you put them in a working stapler. So watch this. James 1.19, excuse me, let me, First uh, John 1, uh, verse number 5, John writes, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, you notice this conditional, he's going to give you a kind of a sequence, teaching sequence. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, what's going to happen? We're going to have fellowship one with another. And what's the next thing that's going to happen? The blood of Jesus is going to cleanse us from all sin. God takes you out of broken background and he puts you in a church. And he is not going to heal you separate from the church. He's going to heal you in the church. Did y'all, y'all hear what I said? He's not going to take you, make you whole, and then try to find a church worthy of you. No, that's not how it works. He's going to take you, he's going to place you in his body, and he's going to heal you in the church. We're going to walk in the light as he manifests to us, as Christ manifested to, manifests to us, and we're going to have fellowship one with another. That's the family of God. And as that happens, the precious blood of Jesus is going to wash us away. We're going to be healed by that precious blood. We're going to be made whole by that precious blood. We're going to be made members of his divine divine family in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me all over the house? I've gone a little longer than I intended to today, but I'm I'm sorry. You have to forgive me. I'm in the family, okay? Oh, I feel the presence of the Lord here. I feel like there's some people here today who you understood some things that you've been confused about as to who you are and where you are. I want to share this with you. I've, I've almost never seen someone made whole outside of the family of God. I've seen a lot of people leave broken families. I've seen a lot of people leave dangerous churches. I've seen a lot of that. But I haven't seen them made whole in isolation. In my opinion... I, I sincerely believe that God wants to put you in a family. In fact, in the book of uh, Psalms, I believe it is, the Lord looks, he loves to place orphans in families, the writer says. I want to invite you right now to step out of the chair that you're in. I'd like you to come down to stand across the front. We're going to end our service here today. Bye. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.